Hi, everyone. This is Anne Doherty, your host of Current, an energy podcast with Alum. I'm excited for today's podcast because like many that we've released recently, this is one of my favorite kind where I get to hear my colleagues chat with interesting people about topics that are of interest to Alum and also of interest to our broader energy community. So on today's podcast, my colleague Rihanna Johnson is speaking with her friend and Professor Aaron Murphy Hines at the University of Arizona discussing all things sustainability, capitalism, human capital, and social capital, and ways that people are working to make change in the way we value energy, the way we engage our communities, and the way we empower one another to see the change we want to see in the world. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Rihanna and Aaron. All righty. Well, hi, my name is Rihanna Johnson, and I am a senior consultant at Alum. And today I am very excited to be interviewing Erin Hines. She is a dear friend of mine, but I think more importantly, she is a skilled sociologist who focuses on a myriad of topics, including gender equity, globalization, and most recently, public participation and sustainability policies in areas around the Southwest. So we are very excited to have you here. And yeah. Thank you so much, Rihanna. I am delighted to be here. And I am feeling so grateful because you and I talk about this often. And now we have a chance to be able to share our brilliant insights <laughs> with the audience today. So thank you for listening for all of you out there. And I am so grateful to Alun for having us today. And we get to talk about something that I love, which is my research. Um, I'll give just a little background on where I am right now and, and what I do. I am currently at the University of Arizona here in lovely Tucson, and it's merely 100 degrees today, which is relevant to our discussion. And I am wrapping up my great, the most fabulous dissertation research, which will be available to the public in the next year or so. But I'll be happy to give us a light overview of what I'm doing. And it really matters not only for people living in the Southwest, but all over the country um, when we talk about sustainability. People living in the Southwest know that we are facing some significant historical challenges when it comes to our environment. On average, we are seeing increasing temperatures. Uh, we're seeing drought conditions. And as we've seen in New Mexico over the last week, increasingly intense wildfires, which leads to other challenges, as you know, air quality, right? <laughs> and yet many of us are living in the Southwest and we're seeing that cities here are some of the fastest growing in the country. Phoenix has been in the top 10 for 
had the last few years and is expected to continue. And my research investigates how we understand and make decisions around sustainable development in our Southwest cities. And I'll just give just a short background on where I come from as a researcher in this field, as from a position of an environmental sociologist. And as sociologists, we tend to take a critical approach to try and understand what's the best way to organize society that allows for human flourishing. And flourishing is like the next level above well-being really more holistic. And as sociologists, we're really good at pointing out what is not working in society, what's dysfunctional, what's, <laughs> you know, and our current model of development, we understand that there are a lot of dysfunctions and we're seeing inequities across race, class, gender, and those many intersectionalities. And we've been looking at this as sociologists using a scientific empirical approach for about the last 200 years. But it wasn't until about the 1970s that some sociologists, these guys named Riley Dunlap and William Catton, realized that sociology had pretty much ignored the constraints of the natural environment or the environmental system and how that impacts human society. So it's only been the last 50 years that we've had this subfield. And we ask questions like, what is the best way for society to organize itself across environmental and to face environmental dilemmas and social justice? So within this framework, my work asks, what narratives, what assumptions shape our approach to sustainable development in the Southwest? And we might even wonder, we might even wonder, and I'll leave this to you, Rihanna, if a desert city can be sustainable at all. <laughs> that is, I mean, like you said, you and I talk about all this, this a lot. And so I love hearing you describe it that way. Um, and something at Illum that we talk about often and that we are very focused on is equity. And, you know, you mentioned that, like, from the sociological lens, you can look at equity. And if we're thinking about getting to this flourishing place rather than just living and sweating in the desert, I think we have to think about equity. And so what have you learned in your research about people who are thinking about growing these cities and how they're considering equity, but also maybe how equity isn't being considered? A giant oh, question. What a wonderful question. I will do my best to address some parts of that. Um, some, of the, some of the things that we know from sociology is this perspective called environmental justice. And this came out of some fabulous scholars who, uh, David Pello being one of the late, uh, leading scholars, Dina Gilio Whitaker is another leading scholar. And what they found is that communities, our frontline communities who are going to face the climate change effects first and worst, tend to also be communities that have intersections of poverty, 
low socioeconomic status, which is going to be low education, low income, uh, and a low status occupation, and communities of color. So we're seeing a lot of overlays and environmental justice has a particular racial lens. And here in the Southwest, of course, we have a fabulous population of Latinx. Um, we have a, 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 large, a large population of indigenous urban uh, residents. And so when we're talking about sustainability in cities, we have to consider these populations. And yet when we're looking at the populations of people who are planning and designing and thinking about our built city, they tend to be, they tend to be white, they tend to be male and are carrying with them an embodied perspective, right? And you and I talk about that a lot, but that shapes what we call your worldview, your ontology, which is how do we understand the world to be, how do we interact with it based on that worldview? And, and that's kind of high level, but what it means is that how we understand the world um, shapes on how we make decisions. And if everyone who's making decisions has kind of the same understanding of the way things work, then we're not gonna see a lot of big changes. And one of the ways as sociologists, we think the world works is that by focusing on an economy first or an economic growth as the primary way that we define a successful city, we're going to continue to recreate some models that continue to leave out these populations that are inequitable. And top-down decision-making tends to come from the same understandings. So if for political feasibility, it has to be about economic growth. And if until we start to think about success as an alternative to economic first growth, until we start to think of it as, is this a system that can promote human well-being, that can promote environmental well-being in a regenerative sense? And we can kind of talk about what that means, but basically it's the idea that people have enough resources to deal <laughs> with these many challenges that are coming at us. And in a very pessimistic way, maybe those are resources that allow people to relocate if necessary. Maybe that's resources that allow people to build communities so when there is a climate event, people have a network, a strong community to reach out to. to and we've seen in research, especially uh, in cities that during heat waves, the people who are most vulnerable to heat related deaths are people who are isolated and elderly. And so thinking about people who are not, you know, part of the market system <laughs> as needing support, uh, we have to start thinking of that as a successful community, not just how many headquarters are we able to draw in and uh, what kind of allures we have for professionals to move to our city, but how do we build the human capital and environmental capital of the people who are already here? So I have about a million questions based on that. You, you said so many things. Um, 
I think one thing that stands out immediately is that the decision makers, as we know, and as we see in every realm, but in urban planning, in architecture, in city development, the leaders or the decision makers are, there are efforts from these people. There are efforts in Tucson to reach out to other communities. And there are opportunities for the public to make comments on certain decisions that are being made. Can you talk a little bit about the the work that you did in your dissertation for learning about those participants and learning um, maybe the recruitment strategies or if there were holes in their recruitment? Like, are they talking to the people who they need to talk to to make these decisions? That's, ah, that's such a good question. And the answer is, it's complex, but we will break apart um, because what we, we know, this is what we know, is that our, our people working in our local governance are earnest in that they want to make, you know, they want to do good work for our communities. And this, you know, even though we're very critical in, in academia, I think people who do this research recognize that there is an earnestness to make our communities better, stronger, and more equitable. But there are some assumptions about how we do this work that continue to kind of make barriers in unexpected ways to get influential participation. Hmm. So it's one thing to get a lot of people to show up for a public meeting or to get a lot of respondents in a survey. But if we don't have pathways for that input to make some influence, to make some transformative change, then one, people get tired of participating because they're like, well, I showed up and did all this work and I don't feel like I'm being heard and I'm not feeling like I'm being represented. Or there's other, of course, logistical barriers. And these are things that our city leaders are talking about a lot. How are, how are we seeing low-income families not being able to attend these public events because they have to work or childcare is an issue or you know, on and on. We all have complicated lives, but there are a lot of barriers to participation. So unless we found in the research, not mine, but others, that homeowners, of course, tend to be much more active in the community, but they show up to protect their assets and their land value. And there is a space, you know, people get pretty vehement about that. That's why we have words like NIMBY, because the people who tend to show up in our local participation tend to be homeowners, tend to be people who have some kind of assets or, um, we call it human capital. So some kind of professional, maybe you have, maybe you know a lawyer, maybe in your HOA, there's someone who can come and advocate for your interests as a neighborhood. And we've seen over time that spaces that have that resistance, that professional um, leverage tend to, you know, show up and get their interests heard um, and be slightly more effective. But we know that not all populations have the same political literacy, have that same professional leverage or the legal power to, to show up, or even friends with people who work in government and might be aware of some of the issues that are going on 
you know, in, in ways that other communities are not going to be as, um, maybe not have friends on the city council, right? You know, you're not having a, a you're not socializing um, maybe with, with the commissioners, right? And that makes a huge difference. But we also see there's, there's all kinds of interesting things that happen. And I'll just give one example. Um, this is, I'll give a little story. Uh, the public, you know, we've been talking about the public or the community, and these are really interesting terms. And there was this fabulous article by this scholar named Jeremy Levine, who about five years ago wrote this compelling argument about this term, the community. And what he found in this work, which is similar to mine, and he was working in Boston and I'm here in the Southwest, was that the ambiguity or the fuzziness of a term like community can sometimes be leveraged by the, by the city experts, planners and policymakers to make decisions based on this idea of the highest and best use, which is really utilitarian approach. Um, and often this can be served uh, for, you know, this, this logic, this idea that we're serving the community can be done without actually getting much input from the community. It's this idea of the community. And it can be this abstraction that comes from, like we talked about, the worldview or understanding of the people making decisions, which tend to be from a similar professional expert class, right? And ironically, these decisions made in the public interest may overlook the ideas or input of actual members of the community. So you can, you know, these kind of ideal ideas of who the participants are and what their interests are. And this is a lack of diversity in how we understand how our communities work. Um, and that's, that's where we talk about things like equity and inclusion in decision-making. It's about getting a diversity of perspective. It's not necessarily getting people of a certain race or ethnicity. It's about getting people from all walks of life who maybe have different priorities than are, you know, are, the people making decision-making are disproportionately have master's degrees, they have PhDs. I mean, they're like people like you and I, Rihanna, who <laughs> have a lot of understanding of a technical economic way of how the world works. And until we can broaden that horizon and value the fact that people use and live in our communities quite differently than the homeowners, uh, then we're not gonna see any changes. So. I kind of went off on a river <laughs> a few tributaries there, but I, I hope I spoke to your question. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I, I know that a lot of our utility clients are currently kind of grappling with the same thing. So looking at non-participants in their energy efficiency programs, you know, who are the people that we're not reaching? They certainly have energy efficiency needs. They, their lives can be improved by lowering their energy usage or by, and the, the climate generally can be improved if larger swaths of the population are reducing their energy use. And so 
at Illum, we've been doing a lot of work in kind of figuring out how to reach these people, how to ask them questions. And I mean, in some ways, how to make them care. You know, like you said, like, we care and we think that this really matters. But when you have somebody whose energy efficiency maybe isn't top of mind or even top 10 of mind, it's difficult to get them to engage. Um, so do you have any recommendations for us or for our utility clients in speaking to these non-participants in a way to, to get them more involved? Yeah, this has been a, I, I've sat in on a lot of meetings over the last few years um, where these questions continue to come up. You know, how do we get more people to participate? Uh, outreach to these populations, especially non-native English speakers or communities that have a distrust uh, for very rational reasons against uh, our existing you know, local governments and federal governments, uh, especially, you know, a, a history of, um, you know, a legal system or a justice system working against many of these communities or not acknowledging them at all through our tribal communities. Um, one of the ways that you can get people, and this will be unpopular, <laughs> but that's why I'm in academia. Um, is by giving them more power. When you bring people as partners or share in the a clear pathway where people are making a difference, I think that you would see people show up. And one of the ways that we've seen, you know, up to this point, people will participate in a survey, maybe they'll show up to a public meeting, but if they're not seeing their voices reflected in the decision-making, I think that you're, you're not going to, or you're going to have the same issues of, um, another way, of course, you can demonstrate that you value this input enough to pay people. Uh, I think a lot of companies are waking up to that idea that in order to get people's participation, you have to pay them for their time. And that's a kind of low-hanging fruit, perhaps, uh, not, for, not for everyone. But sharing power is going to be key. If you could show, and that goes for, you know, you and I have the political literacy to some extent to go and participate in a public meeting. And... Yet, I think many people are a bit jaded or apathetic or, you know, they're going to build it anyway. You know, they're going to wipe out our affordable housing around the corner, which most of them are, you know, um, modular homes. And they're going to build a high rise apartment building and there's nothing we can do about it. And I think that there's this. A, a sense of, of apathy, but not because you don't care, but because you really don't feel empowered. And this is coming from people who have a lot of, you know, human capital to participate in these processes, still dealing with that. So 
you know, not to put thoughts into the, you know, people I haven't surveyed for this work, but <laughs> I imagine a lot of these people don't want to be displaced. So you have to kind of think, think about, you know, if there's an actual space to make a difference, otherwise, you know, what are we going to do? I, is it worth my time to show up and prepare going through all the zoning regulations and updates if it's not going to make a difference? And I, I think that's a huge issue. And we're seeing that across so many spaces in our, I mean, right now for a lot of reasons, but a lot of people feeling quite disengaged from the public process. And, um, and the decision makers want the input. <laughs> but it is, it's a partnership and it has to be. It's not serving the community. It has to be working with the community as partners. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I think you had mentioned this earlier too, that bringing, giving people decision-making power, sharing that power is really important in, in bringing them, in helping them care, but also, making things better for everybody. So that's, that's huge. Um, I think I wanna shift gears a little bit. Um, I know that some of your research has looked into ways of monetizing sustainability. And, you know, that's something that we talk about in our work, we're looking at the non-energy benefits and if there are ways that we can add some kind of monetary value to them. So when you put it into a cost-benefit analysis, you can see that, oh, like improved air quality in somebody's home has X dollar amount of value. So it is worthwhile for a utility to make this investment. And so kind of speaking that, that language of the older white man in having this, this capitalist idea on how to make these non-monetary benefits to society, to a person, how to bring them into the conversation in a language that the decision makers understand. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you've done and how that came up in your research? Absolutely. <laughs> so as much as I have you know, been speaking of a pretty transformative way of thinking about, you know, sharing a more communal approach to decision making, which is, you know, building consensus is costly. We know this, but, you know, rethinking what our priorities are in terms of maybe not so much profit and more, you know, social benefits, but We'll come back to reality. Okay, let's talk capitalism. No, <laughs> so the the world that we live in, I I think um, this is a little periphery for sociology, but um, we do like to tie in with the applied the applied world occasionally, and there is of course this market based uh, approach that you can you know develop metrics that are going to measure things. And we've seen this, this is a, a space that has exploded over the last 20 years, right? Carbon trading, carbon credits, 
you know, we can plant trees over here and then we can process over here. And, and what we've seen very critically is, is that there are, um, there tends to be the same inequities are, are showing up in those systems, maybe just on a global scale instead of a national scale. Where are we displacing uh, these offsets? And where are we planting these new trees? In indigenous forests in you know, Ecuador. So there's some problematic issues there, but um, I do think there's spaces to develop uh, metrics that can serve. Um, and we can use metrics in a way that are going to address social and environmental issues. We just haven't really centered that until mm -hmm. recently. And, and I think that's been the biggest movement over the last probably three, four years is now how do we put equity into every for-profit model? What does that social equity <laughs> into every for-profit model? And we are seeing a big movement in, in something called ESG or environmental social corporate governance. And these are demands that uh, a lot of for-profit companies are starting to track data on. And they're feeding this data into our you know, financial analyses companies, uh, our rating companies, uh, that do bond ratings or investment risk ratings. And what they're trying to do for the first time in the last few years is trying to see, are these social dysfunctions, things that we study as sociologists, are these social dysfunctions uh, affecting investment <laughs> value for our companies? Are they resulting in more instability for investment? Of course, environmental issues work the same way. You know, are there issues going on that are making things more precarious for our company? Of course, we have things like municipal bonds. Is social unrest uh, making it more risky to invest in certain cities? Now, this is all pilot work in the last couple of years. And these big investment firms aren't super transparent with their methodology. But what we can take from them is a shift in thinking about what we can measure and what matters. Because this is a really big shift to bring something like social well-being into the for-profit model. For sociologists, this just blows our minds because we can't, we're like, what? Social well-being and a capitalist economy? How can this work? And we're trying to see, you know, they're doing a lot of the, the uh, heavy analysis because there's a lot of money involved and the early results are kind of ambiguous. It's not as uh, revolutionary <laughs> as many of us hope, or, um, but it, it's still in the early days. The research is super new in the last, I think the first pilot studies were in 2019. So we're in the very front end of, of research about that. But I'll wrap up your question. Uh, there's a, a lot of the ways that we think about legitimate metrics. So in my work, I talk about the sustainable or the, the sustainable development goals of, from the United Nations, okay? And they have a beautiful model, uh, very idealistic. It has everything in it. It's very broad. And 
a lot of people have used that to shape you know, sustainable development levels in our cities and, you know, even companies look to these and that's great, but it's still based on this political feasibility within the economic system within a global capitalist economic system with democratic values, of course, um, and, and certain kinds of input. But metrics don't necessarily have to be that, you know, we can measure a lot of things, right? So maybe instead of focusing on our GDP or maybe our Gini index, which is based on income inequality, maybe we start looking at how are people's subjective feelings about their connection to place? How do they feel about the health of their environment? Does that improve over time? You know, are we seeing regenerate regeneration in our washes? Are we seeing you know, regeneration in our water tables. And why are those metrics not being, you know, the center of understanding success in our cities? And I mean, that's radical, you know, I'm here for it though. We're, we're here, but metrics themselves are not necessarily the, the a constraint. How we're using them is pretty limited. So thinking about other factors that matter and why we're measuring what we're measuring and what that means about our values, that's where those measurements come in. So I think cap and trade and carbon trading and uh, it's, it's better than nothing. Uh, it's not transformative. It's still using the same models and same priorities of economic growth. Um, so we have some work to do, but it's a pretty fruitful space to, to continue thinking about. Well, I appreciate you saying like that was generally hopeful sounding. And I know I get really bogged down in thinking about climate change or even more locally, just like thinking about where is Tucson or where are cities in the Southwest going to go in the next year, in the next five years. And it feels really overwhelming. And it's like, well, everything's just going to burn anyways. But I appreciate your optimism. And it <laughs> sounds like there may be space for great minds like the people at Illum and like you to kind of be doing some of the research in thinking about how we shift the metrics that matter to fit the values of the community. So if we can measure anything, and I think that might be a topic for another podcast, because can we? But you know, theoretically, there are ways to measure things, and there is more data that we have now than we ever have in I mean, every single day we have more data than we've had ever before. So there, there is now the data, but you're right. Perhaps our metrics are, are measuring something that is, is not going to help us move forward. So I, I don't know if this is a real question, but I guess, like, do you see, are you hopeful that we can shift our metrics, can shift how we're doing things in, in the Southwest to make things less dire? I love that question. And I think you're brilliant, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, and I'm really glad that you shifted the question to not ask me exactly what we should be measuring to shift, but I, I, 
I think you're right that that'll be the next podcast. So we'll, we'll keep the listeners on the hook. Yeah. So join in next time. Um, <laughs> but as far as outlook, you know, it would be as a scientist, as we are, as we are, we base things on empirical evidence or things that we can observe. And if anything, the history of humanity is one of adaptation. So I am scientifically, I think it's foolish for us to be uh, doomsday. Now, the, uh, you know, of course, we're looking at reports that are saying, you know, the IPCC just came out and we need to be making some significant changes. And a lot of people are acknowledging that, right? It's not just you and I on this podcast today. Thank goodness. Um, thinking through, you know, some significant changes. But one of the things that, uh, you know, we haven't, we have a history of kind of devaluing, you know, through different ways, right? Colonialism, you know, we've devalued an entire indigenous knowledge uh, or ways of understanding the world. Now we're starting to see, oh, what? Regeneration? This could be a really, um, a very valuable space to kind of start thinking through this. But our, our spaces of power are still um, kind of operating in this growth, 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 you know, endless consumption, the 90s optimism, it's gonna be great. Uh, <laughs> and I think we're coming into a, a realist approach, but I, I, as I say to my students, this is really a powerful place for us to acknowledge the spaces that we can improve. And there are a ton of them, right? Really simple ones as individuals, you know, what are we eating? What are we buying? What are we driving? How much, how often, you know, and of course that matters, but more importantly is, you know, what are our disincentives <laughs> for doing some of, some of those things and um, people who are watching the prices of food and um, gas go up, which is really challenging. Energy prices will likely go up. Water prices will go up. And that's going to be a very um, difficult way to make changes that, that involves a lot of suffering. Um, and so if we can get ahead of that by thinking about, you know, how do we help ourselves and everyone in our community live in ways that are going to be less consumer oriented? I think we're at peak consumerism right now. I, you know, I think anyone who's been watching Netflix, I was just watching Bling Empire. I mean, the amount of consumption is, you know, just amazing. But I think we're going to see a decline in that. You can see that in the young generation, minimalism, all of those are little reactions to that. But um, water is a, a scary uh, prognosis in this part of the world. I think in some way, Tucson has done pretty well to address some of those issues, maybe not for a thousand years, but for the next century. Uh, Phoenix, uh, <laughs> has some work to do, right? They have a lot of potential to make some really big changes, but as we still, anyone who's driven through Fountain Hills 
ensues the spray of water in the air and water being used for private uses like golf courses. I mean, come on, come on. Um, so there are some evident ways that'll change in the next decade. Um, and those are, but no one you talk, everyone in the decision-making space knows this. There's no, there's no one pretending like uh, water and heat and energy are not the big ticket uh, concerns and challenges. So we have a lot of smart people working on it. That doesn't mean that they have it all figured out, right? We need community input, we need perspectives, and we need to be open to doing things differently. And right mm -hmm. now, that's the biggest barrier to change. So I'm hopeful we can overcome. Okay, I like that, open to doing things differently. Because yeah, things, we got into this situation by how we've been doing it for so long, so things need to change. But we are also master adapters. So hopefully we'll be okay. Um, we will. <laughs> we will. I, <laughs> I guess my my final question um, is: Have you seen or heard of any like really good examples of companies or organizations that are doing it the right way? Like they've figured it out. They're working in our system but they're still making changes in the way that they should be? Oh, there's a lot. Um, a lot of them are nonprofit, uh, which makes sense, right? Mission-driven, um, you're serving populations who typically do not participate very well in the market for-profit system. So mm -hmm. Habitat for Humanity, really easy one, right? That's based on voluntary labor, building affordable housing, using a lot of recycled materials. Okay, <laughs> like that's a pretty cool model. Our public libraries are an example of, you know, a communal space. Our seed libraries, especially in Tucson, amazing. How are we bringing in natural plants into our area? Play-based sharing economy. Um, even things like ride share. So <laughs> sharing cars. Uh, hello, that's great. And not only is it more affordable, but we're talking about how are we you know, not everyone needs a car, right? Like I have one sitting in the garage, not being used. That doesn't even make sense. But, you know, and we have, all of us tend to have tools. Maybe we could be sharing some of those. I, I really think that, um, and they're doing that all over the place, it, mostly at a very small scale. Um, places like Illum are actually very progressive in addressing issues like equity, um, a lot of the things that they do, like our podcast today and other resources are, are shared widely, uh, making that information public, right? It's not closed off in some university, although some of my language is a little inaccessible and I understand that. Um, but we do, you know, trying to share some of this information, um, getting people to be able to participate in reimagining our spaces. Uh, Alum is great in also promoting uh, a lot of people of color to come and present, uh, a lot of activists to come and present, and uh, a lot of the checkout Alum's other fabulous content um, about, you know, building the pipeline. What does the equitable energy transition look like? How are we building human capital for 
people who have not been participating in the market system. How do we get them on board? Let's do this. And the small scale trainings have not been as successful as you want them to be. You know, we want to see big chunks of the population uh, being uplifted if we're going to stay in the system that we're in. Um, but yeah, thinking through a, a much more community oriented and not just me talking to my neighbors at the mailbox, but you know, running for office, making that accessible to more people, making, you know, joining commissions, you know, uh, Albuquerque just got their, uh, their late, their first commissioner who is Navajo or Dine. Oh, wow. And which is, and there were a lot of barriers to get her onto the commission. Uh, at first, she was voted as not eligible. There was a big letter writing campaign. Now wow. she's on the commission. Fabulous. But it yeah. took a lot of work. So, you know, getting people into those spaces to try to reimagine. I think the loom's doing great. Not that I'm not even a paid participant. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a plant. <laughs> But, you know, hiring um, people with, with skills who also bring a pluralistic or a different mm -hmm. way of seeing the world uh, is going to be uh, a critical space to not only innovate from a market perspective and stay ahead of the curve and regulations, but to make a social impact. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much, Erin. It has been a pleasure speaking with you as always. And I hope our listeners love hearing our, you know, normal conversations. <laughs> um, I, usually I get to hear more from your side. So we'll, we'll <laughs> save that for later. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know what I think later. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and being with us today. And yeah. We really appreciate it. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rihanna. And thank you for Loom for organizing and having me today. Thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast was produced by Loom's production team. Our music was by Blue Dot Sessions. We hope to talk to you or rather hope you listen again soon. Have a great day. <laughs>